0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garton. This week we want to talk about the double parsha known as Matot and Masai. It is a parasha, quite lengthy in comparison to others. It extends from Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, through Numbers chapter 36, verse 13. And we find in this week's parasha a number of interesting episodes. Firstly, Moses conveys the laws governing the annulment of vows, to the heads of the tribes of Israel. A fairly legal procedure. But then we find that a war is waged against the people of Midian for their role in plotting the moral destruction of Israel. The Torah gives a detailed account of this religious war and how the spoils of the war are to be allocated among all the people, the warriors, the Levites, and the high priest. which of course gives us an indication that the Torah understands this as a religious war. The tribes of Reuben and Gad, later joined by the half-tribe of Manasseh, asked for the lands east of the Jordan as their portion in the Promised Land, These being prime pasture land for their cattle. Moses is initially angered by the request, but subsequently agrees on the condition that they first join and lead in Israel's conquest of the lands west of the Jordan. The 42 journeys and encampments of Israel are listed from their exodus to their encampment on the plains of Moab, across the river from the land of Canaan. The boundaries of the promised land are given, along with the Levitical cities and the cities of refuge, which are designed as havens and places of exile for inadvertent murderers. The daughters of Zelipahad marry within their own tribe of Manasseh. These daughters, who we heard of in a previous parasha, so that the estate which they inherited from their father should not pass to the province of an, another tribe. With me this morning to chat about our parasha is Rabbi Brooks. Sussman. Rabbi Sussman is the founding rabbi and now Rabbi Emeritus of Kol Am of Freehold, New Jersey. He is an adjunct professor at Brookdale Community College in New Jersey, teaching in the Department of Philosophy, Ethics, and History. He is a lecturer with Dr. Christopher Belito of Kane University on Judaism and Christianity. He is the founding member of the Jewish Historical Museum of Monmouth County, New Jersey, and curator of May Museum of Judaica in Lawrence, Long Island. Rabbi Sussman, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts.
1: It is my pleasure to be with you, as well as all those of the listening audience. Thank you.
0: Now, this week's Torah portion, uh, must say, uh, deals with the final chapters of Numbers. As you noted to me earlier, the journey of the Israelites is essentially over. The book of Deuteronomy will be the second telling of the Israelites' story. Uh, and it will be Moses' farewell to those who have survived. Uh, And so I'm wondering if we should begin uh, speaking about uh, those individuals who will be Moses' successors, and how you understand the variety of individuals who were chosen for this responsibility.
1: (coughs) Well, I, I look at the Bible story and especially these stories almost as though it's not a quote unquote holy book, but almost a mystery story where we look for clues as to the who'd done it. In this week's Torah portion, we deal with the individuals, the chieftains, each a Nasi, a head of his individual tribe, who is chosen to lead his individual tribe into the promised land. And the only two names that reference their years of servitude in Egypt are Caleb and Joshua. Everyone else is dead. Essentially, Moses and God, by extension, have chosen only those two people from among those 12 spies who, earlier in the book, went into the promised land to scope it out, to spy it out.
0: So let's make sure that our listeners are uh, up to date. Um, Earlier in the Torah, uh, God, in one of his responses to the Israelites' lack of faith, suggests and demands that only those who were born outside of slavery will enter the land. And so in the generation,, as
1: punishment, essentially, as punishment for the lack of faith and trust that their parents and grandparents had in, them, uh, in their own selves.
0: Perfect. And Caleb and Joshua, who, as you mentioned, will be the only survivors um, of those who have left the land and will now enter the new land. And as you alluded to, uh, in a previous parashah, God and Moses send 12 individuals to scout out the land, and 10 of them come back and say, while it is a land of milk and honey, it is far too difficult for us to conquer, and only Caleb and Joshua, again, exemplars of faith, say that God will make this possible. And so you have identified that they will be the appointed successors, correct?
1: Yes, and let's be very human about this. Imagine that we are now in Jordan, what is now Jordan, standing on the top of a mountain overlooking the Jordan River, and we can see across the mountains of what will be Jerusalem. And everyone is there ready to cross. And Moses is standing there saying to himself, they're going across and not me? What's going on here? Why not me? And so we also have a continuation because Caleb is married to the sister of Moses, Miriam. Joshua is from the tribe of Judah. That's going to become the tribe of King David, the monarchy, and King Solomon it's also going to become the tribe from which we have in the book of Matthew the whole lineage of Jesus going from Abraham through those pre mentioned things down to Joseph, his father. And so these two individuals become so essential to the entirety of Western thought. And it's Caleb and Joshua who believe in themselves trust themselves, and didn't have a slave mentality. And that's essentially what was going on. Moses is this brilliant tactician and theoretician and also military mind. He knows that those who had slave mentality are not going to be able to go into what is going to be a military fight. In fact, they use the terms nifalim that we find in the early book of Genesis the fallen ones, known in Hebrew as B'nai Ha'elohim, almost the sons of the gods. And we don't see that word anywhere else except the spies who came back with the negative views. They were the Nephilim. They were the giants. They were the ones, and we defined ourselves in their eyes like grasshoppers.
0: So let me ask you... um, You've offered this wonderful uh, genealogy that uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is linked um, to uh, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb, especially of the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of monarchy and messianism. But is there anything particular in Caleb's personality that makes him fit for leadership? I think the fact that he was
1: against the negativity of the confreres, those ten who came with, it, with his, his buddy Joshua. And so it's the fact that he stood with Joshua because Joshua was the chosen successor. In fact, God says to Moses, He is filled ruach hakma. He's filled with with the, the the spirit of wisdom, and so it was a preordained, for want of a better term, a preordained choice. And maybe Caleb had the brilliance of hooking himself to the rising star. Also, he's Miriam's husband, and that's family. That's the family to Moses and to Aaron. And so the choice was very specific and very well thought out in these two characters.
0: What's interesting, of course, is um, Miriam uh, rebels against Moses, and yet uh, it appears that her family uh, will be uh, more noticeable entering into the promised land, and even Moses.
1: Absolutely, yes. Remember, Moses, basically, we don't hear of his two sons. We don't know any more of his lineage, but we certainly do about Caleb, and we certainly do about Joshua. And so, in many ways, it's meritocracy rather than specific aristocracy. Caleb and Joshua merited their positions.
0: And again, interestingly enough, while in uh, Jewish tradition, the books of the Torah from Exodus onward uh, identify Moses as the preeminent communicator between God and the people of Israel, and it identifies Moses as having this unique relationship with God— We don't really see Caleb and Joshua having that intense relationship with God, or do we?
1: Well, that's why there are many scholars who say we make the mistake of referring to those first five books as the Pentateuch. It should be the Hexateuch. It should include the book of Joshua, because in truth, God's promise is not fulfilled in the Torah. God's promise, his pledge, his Greek, his covenant with the children of Israel is not fulfilled until Joshua and his troops fulfill it by entering the promised land and taking the land of Canaan.
0: What a wonderful thought so, to share with us. So
1: what them. we're doing is Joshua is fulfilling the covenant that Moses was unable to do, although Moses is the supreme, if I can use it, covenanter. He's the one who received everything. He was the voice of God. He walked with God, but he couldn't fulfill God's pledge. That well, was he couldn't, up- com- he
0: couldn't God's. complete God's pledge, and so you're reminding our listeners that even though the weekly Torah portion is read from the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. That pledge, which begins in Genesis 12 with Abraham, is not completed until the end of the book of Joshua. Uh, there exactly. must be scholars who think that perhaps uh, the book of Joshua was uh, a preeminent book for the Israelites, recounting their history um, and making the book. Um, a significant um, historical telling for all of well, the Jews.
1: In many ways, you would mention that Deuteronomy is literally known as the second telling. It's the revisionist history, and so in truth, we should be going if we want historical the historical context. It should be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua. Because Deuteronomy is, as you said, the farewell to the troops of Moses. They have stopped moving at the conclusion of this week's Torah portion. They don't go nowhere else until we hit the death of Moses and Joshua takes them into the promised land.
0: And so, as we consider the conclusion of the story uh, of the Israelite journey, um. Do you think that Caleb and Joshua fit in the lineage of the leaders who have preceded them? Um, Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all seem to have unique experiences with God. Uh, And Moses, of course, both at Sinai and throughout the 40 years of wandering, seems to have a unique experience with God. But as I indicated, I'm interested if you could share with our listeners your thoughts about whether Caleb and Joshua as the successors needed that same kind of intimate relationship with God. There's a question whether they need it or whether they got it. No.
1: Because prior to the entrance into the Promised Land, God took care of everything. According to rabbinical scholars, in fact, the 613 commandments did not even go into effect until they entered Haaretz, the land, the land of Israel. God took care of everything, took care of their clothing, took care of their food, took care of their, care of their protection. And so it was an intimate relationship between God and literally his children. They get into the promised land, and they had to then follow the laws. They had to be responsible for themselves. They were self-empowered. And we don't have the, the intimate conversations that we have throughout the Torah between God and the patriarchs and even the matriarchs is not found anywhere else until we get to the prophets. These people from Joshua, until we get to the prophets, they're on their own. They are following the laws, and they are following the tradition, and they're remembering what was taught to them by Moses.
0: Now, in saying that, in Numbers 27... God seems to suggest that Joshua has the Ruach in him. Yes. Uh, Ruach is certainly a linguistic allusion to the Genesis creation story, in which we read that the Ruach Elohim is blown into the first human being, um, is that linguistic parallelism a hint at who uh, Joshua is? Is Joshua yeah. now the descendant of Abraham, uh, of Adam, mm-hmm. rather than uh, anybody else?
1: No, because we have an intermediary. The Ruach doesn't enter Joshua from Hashem, from God, it enters them because Moses placed his hands, Samach Yadav, on uh, Joshua. That's when the Ruach entered him. The same thing that you and I received when the Rosh Yeshiva, our, our president of the Hebrew Union College placed his hands on our shoulders, and so it was a passing on of tradition, l'ador v'ador, from one generation to the next, from one rabbi to another. It was the smicha, the placing the samach of his hands upon us that gave us the privilege of being rabbis. That's what Moses gave to Joshua. God didn't... Moses became the intermediary, the passer-on, so that God was able then to accept His chosen, to then choose the followers.
0: So I want to pursue that just for a moment, that in Genesis, as I suggested, we have the term Ruach Elohim,
1: the
0: breath of God, the spirit of God, uh, the wind of God, the word Ruach has many uh usages within Torah, and so here in the transmission of uh, leadership, the word is used um, to suggest that Moses is able to um, transfer the Ruach, the Spirit of God, Um, Through the laying on of hands, which has all kinds of uh, implications religiously and metaphorically. for
1: For our Christian listeners, this becomes almost something close to them.
0: Absolutely. Right? That when you lay hands upon a believer, you are transferring... The Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, from one to another.
1: Exactly. A minister, a priest, a rabbi, an imam only represents the power of God. The power is not in me to do so. It is through me that, for instance, we became rabbis. We became rabbis through the power that was invested upon our rabbis placing it into us. So by extension, the the Makor, the beginner, is God. And then that passing on, that passing on from generation to generation, from individual to individual, is where we are today, with that, the power of our hands and the strength of our spirit, our Ruach.
0: So in many ways, the book of Numbers which we began speaking about as this week's parashah is pretty much the uh, closing story of Numbers, wraps up a number of uh, threads that have um, been left dangling throughout the Torah. Um, well,
1: if you, look, if you look at certain stories within the Torah... When Abraham takes his son Isaac up to the mountain as the supposed sacrifice, if you look carefully, God and Abraham, who have been almost buddies, they, they, they speak with each other on intimate bases. The moment that Abraham ties his son up, God never says another word to Abraham. The question is, why? What did he do wrong? The next time God speaks to a patriarch is when he speaks to Jacob. There's no conversation with Isaac either.
0: And um, interestingly enough, not only does Isaac not speak to God in the uh, story of the second patriarch, but of course, after the climbing on the mount and the sacrificial story, he doesn't speak to his father either. Um, (laughs) Right. Right. So, the, only,
1: the, next time, the next time he and his brother Ishmael meet are when they're burying Abraham.
0: Right. Um, so we have this um, Spirit of God, which begins um, specifically for the Jewish people in Genesis 12. It seems to continue with uh, Jacob. And then, again, skips many generations, because Jacob's sons certainly don't seem to be the bearers of Ruach Elohim. uh, (laughs) Until... (laughs)
1: The story of Judah and Tamar.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, Not sterling
1: characters.
0: Not sterling characters, and even Joseph who is a wonderful protagonist in the story, um, certainly doesn't um, fit with, other than when he says, God helps me with my interpretations of dreams, doesn't seem at any point to be the penultimate uh, purveyor of covenantal life. Um, and then it skips to Moses, Um, And then we have, again, a very different kind of uh, transmission. And that transmission, as you so wonderfully identified for our listeners, will be the same kind of transmission that will exist in the modern age, that um, tradition will lay its hand from one generation to another generation, and it won't be the Spirit of God as much as the Word of God. Uh, Yes. That rabbis um, communicate the Word of God as it's passed down through the generations, through our study of Torah, through our historical interpretations of Torah to the next generation. And one would suggest that likewise in Christianity and Islam, which are also uh, faith based on sacred text well remember so,
1: remember and let me I, i'm breaking in now but
0: no, we okay. are
1: dealing with Christ, Judaism Christianity and Islam are all the three Abrahamic religions they right. all are 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 centered on basically uh, Jacob and uh, Isaac and Jacob and Ishmael so that we all have that same god essentially. We're having different interpretations of God's Word, but we are the three Abrahamic religions. We are family. We are cousins.
0: And each of us has a different notion of the transmission of God's Word, though we all uh, hold sacred to us text. And as we talk about wrapping up the book of Numbers, and as you wonderfully alluded to for our listeners, that in a way they could skip Deuteronomy uh, because it's a retelling and go to the book of Joshua if they want the narrative to continue. Um, though in the synagogue, we don't skip it. We reread it <laughs> to learn why there are these uh, uh, variants in Deuteronomy from other uh stories that are told, or from the same story being told in different ways, um, we are passing on the word. The word yes. as um, is uh, transmitted from generation to generation, from human being to human being. Um, Well, you've given us some wonderful insights. I am so grateful that you've chosen to join with our listeners this morning. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Brooke Sussman from Freehold, New Jersey. You can hear a podcast of our conversation on iTunes or on the CHRI website, uh, for Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day.